Father, we thank you for the truth of that song that to fulfill the law and prophets, to a virgin came the word. Father, we thank you that you have breathed out your word afresh into the world in your Son, Jesus Christ, your ultimate word to us. Lord, we pray that your living word would move in and among us today, Christ among us, the hope of glory. We pray, Father, that you would give encouragement, you would give challenge. We pray that you'd give wisdom and guidance. Most of all, we pray, Lord, you'd fill us with your love, yourself, your compassion, that we would become increasingly image bearers of our Father in heaven. And all this we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Please have a seat. So we may have a wee picture come up on the screen here, a familiar one if we've watched any Agatha Christie movies. Uh, quite often, as we know, that uh, whether it's Hercule Poirot or Miss Marple, the films, the books often end in a scene like this. Wherever there's, uh, you've always got to be nervous, I would say, if you're ever in a Hercule Poirot movie and you end up in a drawing room towards the end of the movie because there's probably a one in 12 chance that you are guilty of murder. And uh, so whenever it comes to a scene like this, we know the characters, we've been showing the characters, the, their personalities and backgrounds and motivations have developed and been shown to us throughout the course of the book. And so when it comes to this drawing room scene, we know the story, we know the complexities of it. There's all sorts of questions. Who done it? Could it be? It could be anyone, of course. And quite often it's the one who is uh, probably the most unlikely candidate who Hercule Poirot uh, narrows it down to at the end of the day. I believe that some people love to read thriller novels and read the last chapter first, or even the last couple of pages. They prefer to know the end of the story before they actually begin reading the rest of it. And um, some people say it really enriches their uh, enjoyment of it. So you may well be one of those people in cases like that that likes to read the end of the story first. But imagine if in reading the end of the story, we thought, well, I've read the last few pages. I'm not going to bother reading the rest because I, I know how it ends. I imagine it would be a great waste. would have probably all these hundreds of pages uh, expertly written, and we would just say, well, I'm not going to bother with them. And also as well, I think that we'd, we'd really miss out on the, the resolution of the complexity of the story. And also as well, it wouldn't mean a whole lot to us if, if we were told that the butler did it, uh, because we wouldn't know really who the butler was, we wouldn't know the background of the story, and um, it would really be to short circuit the whole thing. Often when we read the, the New Testament, we may well read it as someone who is, as it were, reading the end of the story first. And really, in many ways, that's the right way for us to read Scripture. 
over this last number of months, we've read together the New Testament. And as Christians, that's really the right way to go about it. We turn, first of all, to the New Testament as Christians, and we read the New Testament. But the reality is that 75%, nearly 80% of the story is a story that quite often we may well say, well, you know, I know the end of the story, so what's the point of reading the first 75% of the story? But it's similar to reading the end of an Agatha Christie novel and then not reading the rest of it. We don't necessarily understand how resolution has happened in all of the complexity of the story. And also the, the character, the person of Jesus, who's the one who brings resolution to the whole story, we don't fully appreciate who he is and how he has brought resolution to the whole story. In the opening chapters of the New Testament or the Second Testament, sometimes the danger of calling the Old Testament the Old Testament is that actually we may say, well, it's, it's past. It's something that isn't so relevant to us. Perhaps it would be better for us if we use the terms First Testament and Second Testament. When Matthew opens up the New Testament for us, he wants to tell us in the first five or seven chapters of his gospel how Jesus has brought fulfillment. First of all, he wants to tell us how Jesus has brought fulfillment to the story. We looked at this yesterday on Christmas morning. The first 21 verses of Matthew's gospel are full of names. And Matthew does that to set out the history of the people of God in terms of those three equal time periods. 14 generations from Abraham to David, David to the exile, and then the exile to the Messiah. And what Matthew is saying is, here is a little summary in a family tree form of the history of the people of Israel. And Matthew is saying to us, Jesus Christ is the climax of the story. So in the First Testament, we've been introduced to the Lord and figures such as the Messiah, the suffering servant, the Son of Man, the Son of God, and the prophets tell us all about who these people are. But here's the thing, from a Jewish perspective, these were all different unknown characters who had something to do with God's revelation. But no one suspected that actually one person was going to fulfill all of these expectations. You and I are baptized into God's story. And through repentance and faith, we are part of all things being made new. So Jesus fulfills the story. Jesus also, Matthew wants to tell us, fulfills the, pr the promises, the prophecies of the Old Testament. And we can see this in the next three chapters of Matthew's gospel from Matthew 1, 22 through to verse, or chapter 4, verse 25. The first testament ends with prophecy, an expectancy of the Lord fulfilling a promise. And the second testament declares that Jesus fulfills all the promises of the first testament. So once Matthew is shown that Jesus has fulfilled the story, he moves on to tell us that Jesus has also fulfilled the prophecies of the Old Testament. And so, having given an account of Jesus' conception and birth, Matthew makes the connection to the Hebrew Scriptures, including, quoting from Isaiah 7 and 8, 
He says those well-known verses that we read throughout the Christmas and Advent season. All this took place to fulfill the Lord's message through his prophet. Look, the virgin will conceive a child and will give birth to a son, and they will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. We may well have a slide with those verses on it that tell us about Matthew chapter 1 and Isaiah chapter 7. When Herod asked the religious leaders, where is the Messiah supposed to be born? They referred to prophecies from the books of Micah and 2 Samuel. And so they answered Herod in Bethlehem in Judea, for this is what the pro prophet wrote. And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are not least among the ruling cities of Judah. For a ruler will come from you who will be the shepherd of my people Israel. Throughout these early chapters of Matthew, he refers again and again to the prophets, primarily to Isaiah, but also Micah and Samuel, and he refers to them all simply as the voice of the prophet. Then in Matthew chapter 4, just before our reading today, in describing the ministry of Jesus in Nazareth and Capernaum beside the Sea of Galilee in the region of Zebulun and Naphtali, Matthew writes, and this is Matthew 4, verse 14. And again, we have a slide for this. This fulfilled what God said to the prophet Isaiah in the land of Zebulun and Naphtali beside the sea beyond the Jordan River in Galilee where so many Gentiles live. The people who sat in darkness have seen a great light. And for those who lived in the land where death cast its shadow, a light has shined. Jesus fulfilled hundreds of prophecies spoken by different voices over a 500-year period. But that doesn't simply mean that he fulfilled hundreds of predictions. The word testament means covenant. So our Bible has two major covenants, and yet even within the first covenant, there are a whole series of covenants. There's a covenant to Noah, to Abram, to Moses and the people of Israel, and to David. The book is full of covenants and testaments. And that's a little bit different than our normal understanding of a contract. The idea within it is that there's a promise. And the promise is made in this case by God. And his name stands over the covenant. And there's a responsibility within the covenant. There's an invitation for us to obey the covenant, to live up to our side of the deal. And within it, there's this promise, the promise of God's blessing coming through the covenant. The promises were made in terms of what the people who received them could comprehend. So they were not always made in a form that was going to be literally fulfilled. And this is really important because so often we fall into real problems in biblical interpretation whenever we believe that everything is going to be fulfilled as per a flat prediction. Imagine, for instance, in 1950, a father promised to give his son a television set whenever he reached 21 years of age. And then when his son reached 21, up until that time, TVs were all black and white. But on his 21st birthday, the father gave his son a brand new color television set. 
Would his son say, Dad, you haven't lived up to your side of the bargain? You promised me a TV, and my understanding of a TV was that that would be a black and white set with a little knob on it. The son would actually be delighted and would believe that the father hadn't just fulfilled his promise, but he had gone beyond fulfilling his promise. So whenever it comes to fulfillment of prophecy in the Old Testament, the reality is that Jesus Christ has surpassed the original promise in terms of what those who received it actually expected. And that's why Paul the Apostle in 2 Corinthians 1 says this, for all of God's promises have been fulfilled in Christ with a resounding yes. And through Christ our amen, which means yes, ascends to God for his glory. Initially, Paul in his life when he was Saul couldn't see that Jesus had fulfilled all of the promises and prophecies of the Old Testament in a way which brought together all the figures of the the suffering servant and the Son of God and the Son of Man and the Messiah, all brought together in one fulfillment in Jesus Christ. And yet, when he met the Lord on the road to Damascus, he came to understand, or at least began a journey of understanding that Christ had fulfilled and even gone beyond fulfilling all the promises of God in the Old Testament. So Jesus fulfills the prophecies, he fulfills the promises, he fulfills the story, and he also, Matthew wants to tell us, fulfills the law. And there's a slide about this, this is Matthew chapter 5, verses uh, through to chapter 7. So Jesus fulfills the law. So the reading we had this morning was about Matthew telling us how Jesus has revealed the full depth of the law and also lived a life in complete obedience to it. The Hebrew word for law, which is Torah, means guidance or instruction. So it doesn't mean just what we understand by the word law. We understand by the word law just things, rules made by the government that if we break, we will, we will be punished. But actually the word Torah means instruction. It is far beyond what we understand by our word law. And the idea was that This was given to God's people who had been saved by God himself. So when Moses gives the law in the Old Testament on Mount Sinai, people are called to respond to it, not in order to curry favor with God. They are called to respond to the law because of gratitude of being saved out of slavery in Egypt. So too, in the New Testament, and Matthew makes the connection because Jesus goes up the mountain. There's a, there's a connection here with Moses. And the, what Matthew is saying to us is that we had that law from Moses, a good law given by God. And now here is Jesus. He is up the mountain and he is delivering the new law of love. And our salvation does not come by obeying the law of love. We obey the law of love because we have been saved. 
That's why the New Testament speaks so frequently about the fact that salvation doesn't come by obeying the law. Salvation comes by obeying the Word of God, Jesus Christ, by putting our trust in Him, by turning from darkness to light. And the reason why we walk following Jesus Christ is out of gratitude for the fact that we have met the risen Lord Jesus Christ. And so what God does through Jesus Christ is he changes and transforms our heart. He brings new birth, which gives us a desire to obey the law and then gives us a knowledge of the law by the teaching of the Holy Spirit in our lives. And God uses scripture as part of that process of teaching. Now, as we launch into the Old Testament in the Pentateuch in February and March, and really, I suppose as well, from the middle of January onwards, we'll start to speak more and more about the Old Testament. It's really important for us to understand that this is a call by God to live a holy life following in the footsteps of Jesus Christ. Because even though we're reading the Old Testament, we read the Old Testament through the lens of Jesus. And we remember the fact that whenever we read the Old Testament, we are reading the scriptures that Jesus believed, he lived by, he obeyed fully, and he believed as the, to be the inspired word of God to his people. So whenever we read the Old Testament, we are reading the scriptures that Jesus lived by and obeyed. So we follow Jesus, Jesus followed the Old Testament. The thing about the Old Testament is, as we'll discover as we go on, as we know already, I'm sure, is that it is a very sophisticated and complex book, a complex series of books. And that's perhaps why, when it comes to reading the whole wonderful story of the salvation history of God, that we so often choose to read the last 25% and leave the first 75% on the shelf unread because the reality is it is a complex series of books. But by the grace of God, we are going to step in afresh to those uh, books and those stories over the years ahead, and we're going to continue to ask the Lord to speak to us and reveal Jesus Christ to us through the words of the Old Testament. There's a couple of things that it's important for us to know in terms of Jesus fulfilling the law, and that is the nature of law in the Old Testament. And there are three, and again, we have a slide about this. There's ceremonial laws, there's civil laws, and there's also moral laws. Ceremonial laws are those relating to priests and sacrifices. They reveal the seriousness of our sin and our need for forgiveness. They help to explain the significance of the cross, that Christ's one perfect sacrifice that we read of in the Second Testament means that we no longer need to sacrifice animals, and there is one mediator between God and human beings, and his name is Jesus Christ. So here's the thing about the ceremonial laws in the Old Testament. They no longer apply to us. So in a few months' time, Mark is going to speak to us on the book Leviticus. And he will show us the fact that this is a revelation from God about how Christ has, has saved us from sin in our lives beyond our imagination because he loves us deeply. But he will also tell us 
that the rules and regulations that we read of in that book no longer apply to us because Christ has utterly fulfilled them. The second type of laws are those of civil laws. And these apply specifically to the people of Israel. And here, the principles apply to us, but not the detail. So for example, in Leviticus 19, we can read, when you reap the harvest of your land, do not reap to the very edges of your field or gather the gleanings of your harvest. Do not go over the vineyard a second time or pick up the grapes that have fallen. Leave them for the poor and the foreigner. I am the Lord your God. Now, when we read this today, it doesn't mean as Christians that we shouldn't use combine harvesters to plow and reap to the edges of our field. And the reason is because gleaning is no longer a common practice, as far as I'm aware, in the United Kingdom. It is no longer a primary way by which the poor are fed. And so this applies to ancient Israel, but its principle applies to us. And the principle is this, whatever our business, we should always remember the poor. The third type of law are moral laws. You shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery. These apply to us today in the Sermon on the Mount, echoing the giving of the law at Mount Sinai, Jesus shows the law is fundamentally inward and moral. He takes the law of God and he brings it to its ultimate conclusion. And he shows us the fact that the, the heart of the law is the law of the heart. He shows us that outward observance and obedience are important but only as an outward working of what is truly in our hearts. Jesus shows us that we shouldn't get caught up in the externals of what other people see. We focus on living a life of obedient worship to God, being transformed by the Holy Spirit of Christ in us, the hope of glory, and all the externals will look after themselves. And so Jesus summarized the law as loving God and loving our neighbor. And it's so important for us to know the summary of the law, which is just two verses that Jesus has taken from the Old Testament and put together. To love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, strength, and mind, and to love your neighbor as yourself. It's so important for us to know that because otherwise we can get caught up in legalism where we misunderstand that actually the most important thing is having the Spirit of God within us through faith in Christ and that Holy Spirit bringing about a desire in us to want to live holy lives to the praise and glory of God. But here's the other danger. The danger of having that summary in the New Testament without ever reading the Old Testament is that we could become 1960s hippies who sing, all you need is love. Because people have and people do and frequently still today do interpret that as, well, hey, adultery is fine because it's a way that I love my neighbor. 
Now that to you and I may sound a ridiculous form of argument, but there are thousands, tens of thousands, perhaps hundreds of thousands, maybe even more people in this world who live on that premise. In fact, there are millions, I would say, who live on that premise. So if we do not know how to apply the Old Testament to our lives, we will be unable to look the people in the eye who are misinterpreting Scripture and are suffering because of it. We will be unable to look them in the eye and say, let me tell you what God's law of love is all about. So Jesus fulfills the promises. He fulfills the story and he fulfills the law. And so he said, and there's again a verse of this that comes from our reading from Matthew 5, 17. Don't misunderstand, said Jesus, why I've come. I did not come to abolish the law of Moses or the writings of the prophets. No, I came to accomplish their purpose. Jesus fulfilled the law by showing us what it really meant. By living in perfect obedience to God's law, and through his death and resurrection, by setting us free from the power of sin, providing for us a righteousness that comes from God, and also by giving us the desire and the ability to keep God's laws of love. Because we cannot do it without the forgiveness and the inspiration that comes from God through Jesus Christ. We just don't have it in us. Concerning the two testaments of Scripture, old and new, first, second, Augustine of Hippo observed, the new is in the old concealed, the old is in the new revealed. The first testament, we read it through the lens of Jesus Christ, and as we do, the wonder of Jesus Christ's identity and His love for us becomes increasingly clear. The Belfast-born Christian author Chris Wright in his book Knowing God Through the Old Testament, and again there's a slide about this, sums it up like this. The Old Testament tells the story which Jesus completed. It declares the promise which he fulfilled. It provides the pictures and models which shaped his identity. It programs a mission which he accepted and passed on. It teaches the moral orientation to God and the world, which he endorsed, sharpened, and laid as the foundation for obedient discipleship. Jesus Christ grew in stature, in favor with God and man. Jesus Christ understood who he was because he read the Old Testament. He understood what his mission was because he read and knew the Old Testament. This was the truth and the scriptures that his parents taught him. By the time he was 11 years old, he would have known the Pentateuch by heart, word for word. By the time he sat at the temple at the age of 12, he was able to negotiate and debate with the religious leaders because he already knew the first five books of the Bible off by heart, but also knew what they meant. If we were to follow in the footsteps of Jesus, we need to understand the story that he has fulfilled. We need to understand the promises and the prophecies that he has fulfilled.
And we need to understand that he is showing us the depth of what it means to live a holy life in obedience to God. And not only that, that he is the one who has fulfilled the story and has made it possible for us through forgiveness and through the indwelling of the Holy Spirit to live a life in which not only have we the ability to, but also the desire to follow in the footsteps of Jesus Christ and live a life as obedient disciples to him. Being clear as to what it looks like to live a life to shine for God in the midst of a world that is confused and dark. And to do it not so we can look good, but to do it so that people will understand whether they respond or not, we pray they do. They understand that God loves them. They understand that in Christ there's an invitation to step into life in this world and in the world to come. I think that's an exciting call to live our lives by. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your Son, Jesus Christ. Father, I pray that in these days, weeks, and months ahead, that we will come to appreciate more fully who Jesus Christ is. I pray, Lord, that you would reveal to us the beauty of heaven itself revealed in Christ. I pray that you would give us a new love for you, our Father, through Jesus Christ. I pray that you would unleash your spirit in fresh ways in and among us. I pray, Lord, that you would give us a passion to see our lives transformed, the lives of our families transformed, of this church, of this community, and of this world. And to do it in the name of Christ and the power that lies within us through his life, death, resurrection, ascension, and the coming of the Spirit. And all this we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.